irritation that leads to hostility, that leads to persecution, does not happen overnight. These things are always a process and a progression. In fact, this week as I was doing a little research on this, I came across an interesting article that actually identified five stages that move from irritation of a Christian to persecution of a Christian. And I want to suggest these stages to you and uh, briefly summarize them and just ask that you might decide. You decide where we are in this progression as American Christians from stage one to stage five. Stage one is uh, what's called stereotyping the targeted group. Stereotype is where everybody in a group is assumed to be the same with everyone else and there are no distinctions made. You'll remember back in the 60s and the 70s, the term came along called Bible thumpers, Bible thumpers. And this was a stereotype of uh, by the culture of Christianity and Christians. We became known then as haters of science and uh, hypocrites. Christians were lumped together as self-righteous and in fact, backwards, superstitious and weak individuals. It was probably during this time frame that someone coined the term that, you know, Christianity and faith is just a crutch for the weak. That's stereotyping the targeted group. Stage two is then vilifying, vilifying the targeted group. Phrases like this, these Christians are so close minded. Christians are harmful to human dignity and freedom. Those Bible believing people are so intolerant. And hateful, they're bigoted and unfair and they're homophobic would be some of the terms that begin to be thrown around when a group is to be vilified. The third stage then is marginalizing the targeted group. It goes to reason since this faith and this Bible believing Christianity, these conservatives, these fundamentalists, Since they are so harmful to human flourishment and human advancement, it is time to start to push the Christian influence out of center of the culture. It's time to move Bible-believing Christians out of their place of influence in public life and the public arena. We need to banish, we need to banish the things of Christianity then from the public square. This is all part of the process of marginalizing those who hold to faith in Christ and faith in the Bible. And out of this activity comes an intolerance to pray before a high school football game. An intolerance to have a nativity scene at a county courthouse. Or for a teacher to actually read from or cite or use the Bible in a public school setting even as a study in literature. Now, even something like that is egregious and out of bounds. That's marginalizing the targeted group. Stage number four is then criminalizing the targeted group. What are civil suits today become criminal charges tomorrow. There have been many legal injunctions, for example, when authorities get wind of a high school valedictorian. And I guess their speeches often have to be approved by someone in the school. And so that that speech becomes knowledge, you know, public knowledge or knowledge of some before it's given. 
And there have actually been legal injunctions against high school students who are going to cite God or Jesus in their valedictorian address. This is part of criminalizing the targeted group. We're familiar with the Christian Liberty Council, that group of lawyers, Christian lawyers who who volunteer their time and expertise to defend religious rights of people in our country. And and that group, praise God for them, right? Praise God for them. And you ought to consider supporting them. All right. But here's the thing. Their caseload just continues to increase. It is a burden on them. And these cases come up and it takes a lot of money and time and energy for people to defend them. That's criminalizing the targeted group until finally stage number five is actually persecuting the targeted group. And this writer in this particular article said, if current trends continue, religious leaders may not be far from facing heavy fines and or incarceration. She cited already in Canada and in parts of Europe, clergy have been arrested and charged with hate crimes for preaching against homosexual activity. She says the trajectory points to suffering, lawsuits, fines, and ultimately jail. And I end with this quote. Alarmist? One may wish to whistle past the graveyard, but it looks like we're pretty well set for stage five. You decide. You decide. That brings us to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 once again this morning. Join me there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're in a, a, a little mini-series here on the topic of persecution, the persecution of Christians from this chapter in Paul's second letter to this church in Thessalonica. Our outline for the chapter in this little series is this. We are looking at four things that you need to know, four things you need to know When facing affliction for your faith. Pressure. Just simply because you're a Christian. We saw a couple of weeks ago. Number one. Can we be thankful in these times? No matter what stage we're in. From stereotyping to persecuting. Can we can we find something to be thankful for? No matter what happens to us. And Paul would say absolutely yes you can. Because of your faith and your love. And your endurance. And we're reminded that those are the three most important things about a believer. Their faith in Christ. Their love for each other. And then their hope that produces endurance. Our second question last week was. What does this endurance of Christians reveal? And it depends. If you're a believer, it reveals that you're worthy for the kingdom of God. If you're an unbeliever, it reveals that judgment day is coming upon the persecutor. And it's going to come in particularly at the return of Christ. That brings us to question number three this morning. What does the return of Christ set in motion? What does the return of the Lord Jesus set in motion? And again, the answer is it depends. It depends on which side of the aisle you're on when he comes. It depends on which side of the fence you're on when he returns. It depends on whether you belong to him or whether you're running from him. It all depends on whether you belong to the Savior. Follow along with me, verses 7 to 10, then, our text this morning. 
He's speaking of the return of Christ and he says, and he will give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Our title this morning then is uh, encouragement for the persecuted Christian part three relief or retribution. The return of Christ is going to set some things in motion. It depends on whether you're a believer or an unbeliever at that moment. We begin then with the unbeliever and what will happen with them at the return of Christ. Paul speaks here of him being revealed, disclosed from heaven. That's where he is right now. And he's going to be with his mighty angels. That's uh, always what you find in Scripture when you see God moving in judgment. The angels are his instruments and his means and are alongside Angels in flaming fire. Maybe the angels are fiery beings. Maybe that's a fire that's surrounding Christ. We know that in scripture, often fire is a picture of God's judgment. Verse 8, he's going to deal out, hand out, pay back retribution to those who do not know God and don't obey the gospel of Christ. Verse 9, it's a penalty of eternal destruction. And so for the unbeliever at the return of Christ, there will be commence upon them a never-ending penalty and punishment for every sin they have ever, ever committed. This is a payment plan that has no final coupon. You know, the, the book just goes on forever. You never get to that last payment and that last check. Paul is describing here what the Lord Jesus taught, what the Bible teaches That for the unbeliever, there is an eternity of conscious, physical, emotional, and mental torture. First in hell and then in the lake of fire that never, ever, ever ends. God's wrath there is never resolved. It is never spent, never exhausted, and never extinguished. It is a place of outer darkness where the gnawing worm never dies and the burning flame is never, ever quenched or relieved a couple of weeks ago i was cooking some uh, frying some fish in a, in a frying pan with some hot oil and i got a little careless with the piece of fish i was flipping over it was just a simple little cooking mishap and, and a drop of of extremely hot oil landed on my on the end of my ring finger on my right hand five hours later it was still burning That night, I went to bed with my hand laying in a cup of cool water. There is no cool water in hell. We can't even begin to fathom the pain and the torment of a place of flames that you can consciously endure forever. I thank God for allowing us to see fire and all of us eventually will experience a burn of some sort, of some magnitude. That is a great reminder to us of what 
how horrible, how horrific this place must truly be. When he comes from heaven with his powerful flaming angels, the Lord Jesus himself will unleash God's fiery punishment in full and perfect measure. And he will pay back the sinner and begin to pay him back. By the way, for the Christian who is being persecuted, this is why we can turn the other cheek. Because God is going to smash the teeth of the persecutor. This is why we can offer them gentle, loving hands. Because God is going to break their arms for all eternity. Folks, this is the Bible, is it not? This is the God of the Bible. He smashes teeth and he breaks arms because he is a God of justice. And so we do not have to take justice into our own hands. We do not have to retaliate. We can love in return because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And it's not ours to repay. It's ours to love and it's ours to trust. And it's ours to leave them in the hands of God. The Bible says that God has made his bow ready. The Bible says that God has sharpened the arrows of his bow and arrows for judgment. And listen carefully. God never misses. He is the most accurate archer that there has ever been. Paul probably had in mind many verses from Isaiah as he wrote these words. Paul was saturated with the book of Isaiah. The more you study the writings of Paul, you see this. But in Isaiah 66, the word of God says this about God. It says, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind. To render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. That's uh, Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. We are reminded in the book of Hebrews, it calls God a consuming what? Fire. Our, this is Hebrews. This is New Testament. This is after the cross. Our God is a consuming fire. You know, you can kind of tell sometimes when Christians open their mouth that they haven't spent a lot of time in the Bible. Because you'll hear a lot of Christians talking about, in a spiritual way, being on fire. <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll talk about, oh, I just, you know, I want to be on fire. Do you understand that most of the times in the Bible when the word fire is used, it's of judgment? It's of God's judgment. So on whom then will this sword, Isaiah 66, or this retribution, this payback in 2 Thessalonians, on whom does it fall? And this is very important that we're paying attention right now. Everyone is paying attention. No matter how old you are or how young you are. Because we might be inclined to think that it's going to only fall on these persecutors. That God is showing us here, well, this is what's going to happen to them and this is what they need to fear. It's going to happen to those who torture Christians. But let's see what the Bible actually says on whom this retribution will fall. Verse 8. Christ will deal out retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He is describing one group of people in two ways. Because the way you know God is to obey the gospel. The way you come to have a relationship with God is only through Jesus Christ and the good news of a Savior for sinners. 
He's not describing two different groups of people. He's using two descriptions to describe one group of people. The unsaved, the lost, the unbeliever. That's who he's describing. People who do not have a personal relationship with the creator God. They don't know him. They may know about him. They may sit in church and hear endless sermons. They may sit in Bible studies and know the Bible well, but they don't know God. They don't have a personal, intimate walk with the living God through Christ. And they don't know God because they do not obey the gospel. They haven't submitted to the command of God to repent of your sins and believe in Christ. That's what it means to obey the gospel. It doesn't mean go do good works. It doesn't mean go be baptized. That comes after. What it means is to repent of your sins and trust Christ. And those who do not do this do not know God and therefore are now liable for this retribution. They're now standing in a place of accountability before a holy God with no covering, with no righteousness, with no plea. That will ever move and stay the hand of a just God upon their sins. And so God will have no other choice. He will have no other choice but to pour out retribution for those sins that were committed against his holy character. And will come on those who do not know God and do not obey Christ. The outcome then is one of eternal ruination and eternal complete loss of quality of life. They will experience nothing good, nothing fun, and nothing remotely pleasant in any way. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five forty-six of the unrepentant, Jesus said, these will go away into eternal punishment. Not just they will go away, not just they will go away into punishment, they will go away into eternal punishment. And in Mark 9, Jesus said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This this is Jesus speaking in Mark 9. And so this punishment here is not annihilation. There is something worse than ceasing to exist. This is a permanent conscious banishment Notice the text, it is a banishment away from, verse 9, away from the presence of the Lord. It's literally away from the face of Jesus. And it is a banishment away from the glory of His power. It's not away from His power. It's away from the glory of His power. It's not away from his presence. It's away from the face of his presence. His presence to bless and to love and to do you good for all eternity. The unbeliever then that is accountable to God for their sin upon their death or the return of Christ. Will be banished into total darkness. Total darkness. They will be alone there and alone forever. You've heard the phrase, see you in hell. No, you won't. You won't see anyone in hell. Total darkness and total aloneness. You'll have no connection or communication with another soul forever. You'll have no sight of another human being forever. 
you will experience no touch, no kindnesses, no social media, and that will be the least of your worries. Imagine going down a steep flight of stairs into a basement that is creepy and dark and musty and you have a flashlight in your hand and once you're down at the bottom of that basement, a distant door slams behind you, eliminating all light. But you have your flashlight, but now the batteries just went out. And so what would any of us do in that situation? We would reach for our cell phone. (laughs) But the batteries are dead. The battery's dead in your cell phone. And you soon realize that you're utterly alone and you cannot find the stairs to get out. There will be no music, no movies, no video games, no football games. There'll be no party, there'll be no drugs, and there'll be no alcohol to numb the pain. And there will be no sleep to escape it either. There will be nothing but never-ending conscious punishment Forever alone and forever forgotten. Forgotten. It'll be the complete picture of a meaningless and purposeless existence. And who goes there? All of those who die without a personal relationship with God through obeying the gospel of Jesus. Turn to John chapter 3 for a moment. John chapter 3. In verse 35 and 36. John 3 verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life. He who believes present tense continuous action in the son. That's Jesus crucified, buried, raised from the dead, ascended back to heaven. He who believes in the Son has, possesses it now, eternal life, life without end, abundant life, pleasurable life, joyful life, blissful life, glorious life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God remains, continues, present tense, continuous action. It abides on that individual. Turn over to John 17. John 17 and verse 3. Part of the prayer that Jesus prayed hours before he was crucified. He's praying to God. And he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Doesn't that sound like something like what Paul was saying? Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So that's part one of the answer. What will the return of Christ set in motion? Well, it depends. If you're an unbeliever, that's what it will set in motion. If you are a believer, the answer is completely different. Look at verse 7 then, back in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians. If you're a believer, 
What it sets in motion is relief. Rest, verse 7, he says, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. So when the Lord Jesus is revealed, what he will do for his afflicted people is hand out relaxation. He'll hand out rest. They'll enter into his rest. It is the polar opposite of everything I've been discussing and talking about, pleading with you about. And then look at verse 10. Not only do we receive this rest that we've longed for, but verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints. Not only will we experience this great blessing of relaxation, but at the same time, we'll begin to glorify him perfectly in the holy ones. And then look at that next line. And to be marveled at among all who have believed So once again, Paul's describing the same group of people in two ways. He calls them saints and he calls them those who have believed. They are believing holy ones and they are saintly believers. And that describes a Christian. They are set apart from sin, set apart to God, and they believe in Christ. And that one group described two ways will experience rest and they will experience for the first time perfect glory to Christ through their life. And and they will marvel at Christ. Marvel at Christ. What will we experience when he returns? We will stare in amazement and awe of who he is. We will be in awe that we are there. (laughs) With him. We will stare intently at his nail scarred hands. And we will wonder in amazement at his resurrection glory. Before our very eyes. We will marvel at him. We will be dumbfounded at his infinite majesty and his indescribable condescension to humanity. We will stare speechless at this one who is fully God and fully man in one person and is talking to us. And looking at us with eyes of love and compassion. We will be blown away that the one and only Lamb of God and Lion of the tribe of Judah is standing right in front of us. We will marvel that the word was made flesh and then made to die and then rose again and now he speaks. We will marvel that the divine son of God is eager to hand out rewards to us that his grace accomplished through us. We will be in awe. We're in all that we're here. We're in all that you're giving us rewards. It will be beyond anything you and I have ever comprehended or imagined. We will marvel. In fact, the word marvel means surprised, shocked. You and I will be surprised at just how glorious he really is. We had only heard the half of it. We are be surprised. And in awe that we are loved like we are loved by the God-man. In fact, I think we'll be like the Queen of Sheba when she visited King Solomon, who was surely a type and and a reflection of the King of Kings to come. You remember the story in 1 Kings? And Queen Sheba comes from Africa to visit Solomon. And she has all of these questions. And she wants to test him with all of these riddles and puzzles. And he solves them all and answers them all. And she gets to the end of that. And she's just like a, a, a limp dish rag. You know, she's got no fight left in her. And she says to him, you know, I'd heard reports of you. 
And, and they were amazing, but I had only heard the half of it. She says, and behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord God, the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. We will marvel. How can the Messiah be crucified and now crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Well, how will this be possible for us? How will we how will we uh, come to have this relief of verse seven and come to have this surprise and this awe of verse 10? Look at the end of verse 10. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. Look at the end of verse 10. How is this possible? For our testimony to you was what? Say it loud, please. Believed. Our testimony, that's the gospel, that's the witness. Paul came, the missionaries came to Thessalonica and they preached Christ crucified, buried and risen from the dead. Put your faith in him, only in him, and you can be forgiven and have eternal life. And he says that testimony was believed. And because it was believed, you'll have this relief and you'll have this marveling. How do you escape the never ending punishment of a holy God and experience unending relief and give honor to Jesus for all of your eternity? You put your full trust in what I'm about to say to you. If you have never done this before. God is holy and he cannot tolerate the sight of sin. God is so holy that he must punish all sin perfectly and completely. You are a human being made in his image. You exist because God willed you to exist. And God wills you to be alive right now. And you're made in his image and he is your creator and he is your lawgiver. And God gave us a set of laws and they're summarized in the Ten Commandments. And that's summarized in one great law that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, if you're here today and you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all of your strength every day of your life, then you don't need to listen to the rest of this. But if you haven't, if you've loved yourself, if you've loved sin, if you've loved anything other than the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you need a Savior. You need one who paid the penalty for your not loving God and instead loving yourself and loving your sin. You see, we are made in his image, but we are fallen sinners. We are born sinners. And so that's all we can do until God's grace comes to us through Christ. And God comes and he begins to convict us that we are lost and we are separated from God. And if we die, we are, in fact, going to begin to populate this terrible place called hell. And when that begins to stir in your heart and you become aware of your sin and that you need a savior, then God begins drawing you toward the person of his son, not toward good works, not toward a church, not toward baptism. 
but toward Christ and only Christ. The Lord Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. He is the only one that loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength his entire life. Without a glitch. I was thinking this morning as we were taking communion, Lord Jesus, I thank you for keeping your body pure. Thank you for keeping your mind pure. Thank you for being innocent and holy and separated from sinners. So he came here. He was born of a virgin. He grew up. At the age of 30, he went into public ministry. And he began to perform miracles that authenticated that he was God's only son. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. He gave speech to the mute. He fed the hungry. He cleansed the leper. He cast out demons. He showed that he was the very power of God on human earth. And the kingdom was being offered. And then he willingly and voluntarily, after a kangaroo court and false accusations, went to a Roman cross. And he allowed some of his own creation to hammer his hands and his feet into a Roman instrument of execution as a lowly criminal As a thug, as a terrorist, they put him in the middle of three people because they saw him as the worst of the three. And he allowed all of that to happen because he was the Lamb of God laying down his life for sinners like you and me. They killed him. They took him off the cross. They wrapped him in burial cloth. They put him in a tomb. And they sealed the tomb with a Roman guard and a giant stone so that his disciples could not steal the body. And on the third day, angels came, rolled away the stone, and God raised his son from the dead. And God said, I accept the sacrifice this one made on behalf of sinners. Paid in full, payment accepted. Jesus rose from the dead. He was alive for 40 days on this earth. He was seen by over 500 people. And then, from the Mount of Olives, he ascended back to heaven. That's where he is right now. He's in the body God gave him and raised from the dead. He's glorified. He's fully God and fully man in one body. Will be so forever. He sits at God's right hand. And he is the only door to paradise. He is the only escape route out of hell and into heaven. And Paul says to these Thessalonians, our testimony to you was believed. Put your faith in Christ. Turn from your sins. Give yourself to God. And trust Jesus. And then out of that will come a life of obedience. And out of that will come a life of good works. And then you can sing with all the saints forever and ever. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You put your faith in that message. You put your faith in that Savior who offers to you right now eternal life. He offers to you forgiveness of your sins. It is simply there for the asking. Bow your heads with me, please. Just a few moments of uh, quiet and self-reflection for you to do business with God, to not leave this place unassured of the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life with Christ.
Oh, dear one, dear child, dear middle-aged person, dear older person, today is the day of salvation. You are not promised tomorrow. You're not even promised the next hour. Today is the day of salvation. Do business with the Lord Jesus. You may have been in church decades. Let me tell you something. God is not impressed. He is not moved by your church attendance. He is not moved by your knowledge of the Bible. He is not moved by your spouse's faith. He is moved by the blood of Christ. Father, we recognize that salvation is of the Lord. We ask you to come by the power of your spirit. And through the preaching of the gospel, create faith in Christ. We ask you, God, to open the eyes of the blind like Jesus did when he was here. And to raise the dead like he did when he was here. We ask you, God, for our children this morning. That they not be lost. And for our parents, for our family members, our co-workers and our friends at school, and our neighbors on our left and our right and across the street, God have mercy. We pray today, God, for Kerrville, for this city you've allowed us to be part of, this community. We pray for a gospel revival in this place. For the word to be preached from hundreds of pulpits, churches to be revived, the word of God to be upheld, revival to come. We pray, oh God, for our nation, so wayward, so broken. We pray you would stay your hand of judgment and bring mercy to the land of America. We pray for our leaders that they would be converted to Christ That these who have heard about God and have heard about Jesus would finally bow the knee from the top, from the highest in the land, Lord, to the lowest, wherever they may be found. Those who are over us in authority, would you move with saving power? We pray for your persecuted church around the world today. That your children would stand firm in the faith. That they might be welcomed home as worthy of the kingdom of God to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We pray all of this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.